Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to this, our sixth episode in our Great Sea Fight series. And this particular episode being part three of our special on the battle between USS Constitution and HMS Guerriere on the 19th of August 1812. If you've yet to check out our Great Sea Fight series, please do so. There is so much to find, each special edition consisting of several episodes. We have recently covered a Tudor sea battle in the reign of Henry VIII. It was one of the Mary Rose first battles. It was also the first time that a naval battle was fought between ships firing out of gun ports. We've also covered the mighty clash between Russia and Japan at Tsushima in 1905, in which the Japanese utterly annihilated the Russians. Uh, that comes with a brilliant animation of an eyewitness battle plan, which you can see on our YouTube channel. We've also covered the Battle of Jutland, that great naval battle of the First World War, Nelson's heroics at St Vincent in 1797, and the Battle of the River Plate from the very beginning of the Second World War. Today we're continuing the story of the USS Constitution and HMS Guerriere from the War of 1812 a ferocious single-ship engagement that rather turned the tables on what everyone was expecting from a naval fight between Great Britain and the United States. Episode 1 explained the events in a narrative. Episode 2 presented the eyewitness accounts written by the ship's captains, and fabulous they are too. Um, so if you've come to this episode fresh, do please check out episodes 1 and 2 so you've got a sense of what happened during that battle. Today we bring you the work of the American historian William S. Dudley, who has explored the nitty-gritty of how on earth the US managed to create itself a navy out of nothing. Why have I come to do this? Uh, I, wanted to, uh, I want to write this book because I had read so many books that depended on uh, describing the warfare at sea. Uh, and the individual maneuvers of each ship, of, of fleets of ships. And in effect, uh, it was all, you know, in effect a glorious action uh, by one Navy or the other. Uh, what, what I perceived uh, when I was working for the documents project was that there really needed to be a 
history of what made a Navy work. How did it function? And were the material needs adequate to the needs of the Navy? And it's my conclusion that uh, that, that book had not been written. And so when it came time for me to write this book, Inside the U.S. Navy of 1812-15, that was the book that I wanted to write. So in terms of materials, I had already read through the documentary materials, and uh, I knew which ones to select for this book. So in effect, this book uh, is a rather comprehensive view of the U.S. Navy during that period of war. It also uh, is a new interpretation because it emphasizes the material side rather than the, than the operational side of the U.S. Navy during that war. Uh, so I feel that, that uh, this is the contribution of my book. What I'm really interested in talking about today is how the Americans managed to get their Navy to sea, how they managed to build, maintain, man, fit out, provision, all of those very difficult things that were required for a Navy. And it had to come very quickly. Um, let's start with the Navy yards. Yeah, let's. Uh, so, yeah. so in order to uh, do this, uh, this, this, we sort of reviewed the political situation and uh, the, the matter of trade between nations. The uh, United States, in order to have built a Navy in the first place, had to provide the list logistics for the Navy. How do you do that? Well, you have to concentrate uh, the timber, the canvas, the lumber, uh, the ironwork, that all goes into constructing ships. And you would do that in a Navy yard. Uh, the Washington administration, <clears throat> 1799, created six Navy yards uh, from Norfolk, which was called Gosport, up to Washington, DC, to New York, to Boston, to Portsmouth and Charleston. Uh, the Washington Navy Yard was the one that was uh, earliest, but there were also private shipbuilders in most of these cities. And at first, uh, the Navy had to be built in the private yards. But after a while, say a dozen years, the uh, Navy Yards had begun to function as a proper Navy Yard should. Uh, and uh, what they have is hundreds of men or specialists and all sorts of things uh, from uh, uh, create, uh, creating rope of all sizes uh, to uh, creating, uh, making sails. Uh, they went into recruiting of hands uh, from the merchant community into the Navy. Uh, on many of these sailors actually uh, happened to be British or of British origin. Well, so was the United States at the time. So it's a very young country. And what they're trying to do is build up uh, the infrastructure uh, in order to have a Navy uh, worth calling itself a Navy. Uh, mm -hmm. This, this uh, process uh, was a slow one, but had to be done uh, thoroughly. And what had happened by the time 1812 came around, the, uh, the small U.S. Navy had fought a war against the Barbary pirates. They had fought uh, several actions against the French, uh, both uh, French official warships 
and French privateers in the Caribbean. So that the officers and crew of the small Navy we had were quite well trained in what they were supposed to do. There just weren't enough of them. And as a, as a result, uh, there was only, were only six, 16 vessels for the U.S. Navy at the very beginning of the War of 1812. Uh, about uh, seven of them were frigates, and the rest were brigs and uh, corvettes. So uh, that's ex the origin of the Navy, and, and that uh, sort of explains where we were at the beginning of 1812. What, <clears throat> what we didn't have was uh, the infrastructure to create Navy ships uh, up on the Great Lakes. And the Great Lakes, it happens, was uh, essentially uh, a second front. Uh, the United States has to fight a two-front war, uh, one on Lake Ontario, another on Lake Erie, and another on Lake Champlain, in addition to the war on the Atlantic, which stretched uh, 1,500 miles, of, around 1,500 miles or so of coastline uh, from the coast of Maine or Massachusetts all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. Where did they get the men to man all of these ships? Because it's what well, one challenge is being able to, to to create ships out of nothing, and how difficult that is. But then you've got to fill them up with men. How do they manage that? Well, the men. Um, let's go back a little bit more. Uh, United States had had uh, a seagoing population for years. In fact, if you would say state it clearly. The United States was a maritime nation. It was not an terribly urban. It was mostly agricultural up to the uh, Appalachian mountain chain. And uh, most of the sailors uh, were either uh, coming from the farms or had been in merchant service for years before the revolution. And so when the Navy was created, uh, this is the source of uh, most of the men who uh, ultimately served in the Navy of the War of 1812. Uh, there were either the, uh, the landlubbers who came from the farms and um, they would become the, the lowest level of manpower in the Navy. Uh, the experience, more experienced uh, men were either ordinary seamen or able seamen, which is a higher degree of skill and experience. And then beyond that, uh, the ones who were most experienced often became the petty officers in charge of the men uh, on the different details of running a ship. And uh, the officers, uh, most of them came from the merchant service, but several had served in the British Navy before the American Revolution, actually, and then uh, emigrated uh, to the United States. And I'll give you one example, was Commodore Tunji. Now, Tunji was not a Commodore of the British Navy. He was a, a captain, a young man who came from service in the Royal Navy in the uh, 1770s and emigrated to the United States and ultimately uh, was dwelling uh, in Philadelphia. But I ran into some wealthy individuals in the merchant trade who got to know him during the 1780s and 90s. And uh, Robert Morris is one of these uh, individuals. 
a very wealthy man who, who is said to have financed the revolution personally by himself, uh, which is not true. Uh, but at any rate, <coughs> uh, Tenji uh, was uh, nominated by these gentlemen uh, to Secretary of the Navy, Robert Smith, as a person who was capable of being trusted with the Washington Navy Yard. Um, the amazing thing is that uh, Tenji not only did his job well, but he was there for a long time. And he, uh, he eventually died, <laughs> died in the Washington Navy Yard in 1729, having been the only commandant of the Washington Navy Yard. So this is a small example of a, a British officer who becomes uh, an officer in the United States Navy, and then uh, ten, rose to nearly the top in terms of uh, ruling a shore, <coughs> running a shore activity of the Navy. And there are lots of civilian Navy agents as well working with the Navy Yards for the procurement of timber. Yes. Uh, how was all that set up and how did that yeah. work? Well, this goes back to the very first building of the, uh, the Navy ships. The first Secretary of the Navy uh, set out the requirements for how you contract with a ship. You have to use the uh, civilian contractors for many of the small jobs that are um, needed to be done on the ships. Uh, they lay, lay this out in instructions on exactly what must be done. Uh, and as the Navy grew, uh, there had to be agents of the Navy who would do the contracting for the Secretary of the Navy. Uh, they would remain uh, more or less dwelling in the seaports so that if a ship came in uh, needing uh, anything, what could be food or uh, cordage or uh, ammunition, the Navy agent would be the one that would uh, go out to the uh, civilian contractor community and find the right source uh, for uh, the ships and uh, make the arrangements, make the contracts. That's the Navy agent. Uh, but in each, in each Navy ship, there was an officer called a purser. And the purser was in effect the money man of the individual Naval ships. He was under responsibility, uh, answering to the captain, to uh, make sure that the ship was provisioned with everything it needed. And this goes from clothing for the seamen uh, to the, the beverages that they drank to the food they ate. And it had to be uh, purchased in bulk in order to, in order to make a ship uh, uh, survive over three to four or five months of a, of a cruise there had to be a huge amount of, of food stored. Uh, the person responsible for um, the arrangement of that, uh, for the uh, delivery of it to the men, uh, he was uh, answerable to the commanding officer if he did not conduct his, his job right. The, the purser was allowed to charge a small commission on the goods that he sold to the uh, seamen in, in, in terms of uh, articles of clothing or uh, small comfort items such as tea or sugar, uh, which they required but uh, was not provided uh, by the ship officially. Uh, so it was like a little ship's store and the purser was in charge of doing that. 
for the sake of the men. He was in charge of the uh, portioning out of uh, rum or wine uh, for the ship's mess. Um, then the um, instructions for the purser are very clear. They were laid out in Navy uh, in the Navy uh, administration, naval rules and regulations, um, that uh, the purser had to be careful not to favor the officers in the distribution of special cuts of meat or special uh, spirits, uh, wine or or, uh, or brandy and that kind of thing. So that uh, so that the, the commanding officer would not have a problem on his hand. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Now beyond that, uh, if if a ship were to put into port where there was no Navy agent, well, then the purser would have to go ashore and make his own arrangements with the, uh, the civilian suppliers wherever they were. And I suppose the, effect, the effectiveness of that depended on where you actually managed to go ashore. My, my question is, is, was each of the Navy yards as successful and efficient as the other, or was there a wide variety? Well, it's a pretty wide variety. Uh, the most efficient yard and the, and the largest one became the Washington Navy Yard. And of course, that's what's called the, the center of the government was established there after 1799. But uh, the ones after this were in Philadelphia, in New York, and Boston, and to a lesser extent, ports of Navy Yard in New Hampshire. Um, the least effective Navy Yards were in Charleston. Uh, it's not near a real industrial area. Most of the uh, Navy Yard areas had to be surrounded by populations which uh, provided uh, the Navy with the skills that it needed. So uh, that's, that's the uh, variations in terms of size. But unfortunately, the Navy Yards were not equipped to the extent they should have been. This would have come later. It takes many years to 
construct all the facilities that ships need in a Navy Yard, such as uh, a dry dock, uh, which would uh, allow the commandant of the yard to uh, haul the Navy ship out of the water in order to clean a hulk or uh, to uh, strip uh, planks off the side uh, without dam damaging the ship or without uh, threatening to uh, to sink the ship, shall we say, in the water. The uh, normal thing to do if you had to clean the bottom of a ship in those days and you didn't have a dry dock was that you had to haul it over on one side, clean the hull on one side, then haul the uh, ship over on its other side and, and do the same thing uh, with that. So it, it took a great amount of labor. The ship had to be completely emptied of all ballast, uh, guns, uh, ammunition, uh, furniture, as they said, uh, in order to do that kind of thing. So it was inefficient uh, without that uh, dry dock. And uh, it, 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 there were times when uh, if a ship couldn't be uh, properly cared for, say in Boston, they'd have to send it to New York uh, as they did with the, uh, with the Essex and the Chesapeake uh, just at the beginning of the war. Um, so there were, there were uh, weaknesses in the system to begin with. So one of the things we have discovered as in the work that we did on the uh, US Navy uh, was to see that uh, most of this logistics was not uh, well prepared for war. And that is because of the lack of finance that went into the Navy. The Navy wasn't ready for this war in terms of material. And it's, uh, the logistics had not been really well developed before the war. Now, I haven't explained what logistics is, but it basically is providing a ship with everything it needs, when it needs that and where they are. And this had to be done uh, at a time when the roads were out of repair, they didn't exist in some areas. And for one thing, uh, the heavy timbers that were required to say build the 74 gun ships that wanted, that uh, Madison wanted ultimately to be built uh, were not available in the North. They had to come from the sea islands of Georgia and Florida um, and beyond that, later on, uh, they had to be cut on the scene. They had to be shipped uh, already with pieces uh, measured and cut um, along the coast back to the Navy Yards to provide uh, the ship fitters, excuse me, the shipwrights with what they needed. Um, but the blockade of the British, uh, British imposed on the uh, U.S. coast during the War of 1812 was quite successful in preventing these uh, needed materials to arrive at the time they were needed. And so as a result of the blockade, the 74 gun ships that were the, the dream of uh, Secretary of the Navy Jones never could be completed before the end of the war. Um, this, it, uh, this also applied to the heavy armaments. They had to be shipped by land. Uh, hauled by horses and oxen uh, along muddy roads that were taking many, many weeks that could have taken just a few days 
in a sailing ship. Let's just stop and talk about where those guns came from. So we're talking about uh, 32-pounder carronades. There are 24, 18-pounder long guns for the frigates and smaller guns, 12 and 16-pounders for the schooners and the sloops. They all had to come from somewhere. So, so where, where did they get them from? Well, you have to go back to the period of the Revolution. Uh, there was a time when uh, the United States was very... Uh, very weak in terms of being able to produce iron and uh, forge it into the shape of guns uh, that could be used in battle. Uh, but very quickly after the revolution began, uh, this capability entered uh, into existence. And so by the time the War of 1812 comes around, there were beginning to have some significant facilities that could do this. One was in the Chesapeake Bay at the very Northern part uh, of the bay, um, and it was uh, providing much of the uh, 24 gun, 18 pound gun, 24 pound guns, and 32 pound carronades that were needed. Uh, there was also a facility in Washington, D.C., uh, created by Henry Foxhall, who was an Englishman uh, who had learned to trade and uh, it ultimately uh, emigrated. Uh, to the United States, uh, despite the fact that there were restrictions on talented individuals leaving uh, the United Kingdom uh, uh, because they didn't want to lose the talent they knew they needed uh, for their own military purposes. At any rate, Henry Foxhall and his family emigrated to Philadelphia area and soon ended up in Washington, D.C. after the government uh, was established and it became clear that if you're gonna have a Navy Yard, you better have a facility there nearby that would uh, create the uh, ammunition and the guns needed in, by the Navy ships. So Henry Foxhall's uh, Columbian, uh, Columbia factory up uh, along the Potomac was, was one of the uh, biggest production facilities of its kind. Uh, we jump back a little bit in 1813, as the British invaded the Chesapeake Bay, they rapidly found the uh, foundries uh, up up in the northern part of the bay, and uh, Admiral Cockburn uh, efficiently uh, destroyed every bit of it. Uh, so that wiped out one important source of supply for the Navy. Fortunately, uh, Henry Foxhall's facility near Washington was able to supply. Uh, what the uh, Chesapeake facility could not supply anymore. Uh, also, let us talk about uh, powder. Uh, the manufacturing of powder uh, was a dangerous process. Uh, it had been done since, the <clears throat> since before the revolutionary era, but only in small quantities. Uh, by 1800, there are several uh, flourishing powder manufactories in the middle Atlantic states. Uh, there was one, also one in uh, Connecticut, near Salisbury, Connecticut, in, uh, in, in Delaware and Maryland, we had the DuPont facility, uh, which was a major facility. Uh, the, uh, the DuPont firm produced much of the powder used by the US military in the War of 1812. But it was the Maryland and Pennsylvania uh, powder factories that came through uh, for the Navy. 
and uh, there was one in New Jersey called the Bellona, uh, goddess of war. Uh, the, uh, there was another Bellona in Maryland. And it's interesting that all these powder factories had to be located near rivers, which would provide the water supply to run the mills to grind the powder uh, in whatever uh, degree of fineness it, it needed. Uh, powder could be fine or coarse, and it would depend whether you're going to want what purpose you wanted for the powder. Uh, do you want it to, to prime the gun, or do you want it to uh, be a very powerful powder to shoot the uh, cannonballs out, uh, say 500, 1,000, 1,500 yards? Uh, that was the usual need for uh, powder, and it had to be done carefully when you made fact made powder. You had to test it, you had to prove it uh, to see how far it would, would throw a, a ball. Every, all these facilities uh, near the Navy Yards had uh, proving grounds, and that's what they call them, proving grounds. So this is the, uh, the, the, the killing side of the Navy, if you will. The, the idea being, uh, unfortunately, that uh, when you went to battle in the Navy, basically you're sailing two forts against each other and <laughs> they were of tremendous uh, destructive power. Uh, not only did they send these enormous uh, cannonballs out weighing anything from a relatively light four pounds to a, a very heavy 32 pound shot, but then uh, they, would, they would send uh, like a shotgun would uh, smaller pellets out uh, uh, in terms of say a diameter of one or one and a quarter inches uh, that would spray out and be a man killing machine in effect uh, on a ship's deck. Uh, and beyond that, they had all sorts of uh, fancy devices that could uh, twirl in the air and separate the ship's sails and snap the ship's cordage and so that the, the spars would fall down on the deck and create chaos uh, and aside from killing the men, it was very important to bring down the rig so that the ship, in effect, uh, that you were fighting uh, became a, a, a hopeless wreck. Uh, and that is exactly the goal uh, of uh, war at sea. Uh, yeah. Eliminate the enemy by best means. And I'd say one more thing is that uh, if they ran out of uh, uh, prepared ammunition, they'd put anything they could fit into a cannon and blow it out. Uh, bits of shards of uh, shards of sharp metal, nails, uh, anything that would do damage. That that's uh, what what the ammunition ended up being sometimes. Well, and it was all put together by the, the Navy Yards and all of this extraordinary infrastructure. Bill, thank you very much for talking to us today and explaining everything that went into the War of 1812. And thank you for the opportunity, Sam. No worries at all. And I would urge all of our listeners to read that book. It really is very splendid indeed. Thanks a lot, Bill. All right. You're welcome. That's it for today, but do make sure you stay tuned for the final episode on this battle coming soon. And that will explore the broader context of other single ship actions in the war with the historian Nick Kaiser. 
Do please follow us wherever you are on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram or YouTube. Particularly, please take the time to check out the videos we've been creating on YouTube. You can see that some of these interviews have been filmed and also that we've been working with digital artists to create some really fabulous new ways of presenting our maritime past. Uh, For those listening on an iPhone, please take a few minutes to rate or review the podcast. It makes a huge difference to our rankings on iTunes and um, people picking up the podcast. Best of all, please join the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk. It doesn't cost very much, but it does so much good. It supports this podcast. You get four printed journals a year, and mighty fine are they too. Uh, You can sign up to come to our annual dinner on board HMS Victory. That's a really tremendous event. Everyone should do so. Um, And, of course, the money supports all of the other worthwhile goodness that the Society does to publish the world's most important maritime history and to preserve it our maritime past.